They can be as old as the Taos Pueblo or as modern as the Gateway Arch in St. Louis. There are dozens of important historic sites and monuments across the United States that are in danger of falling apart. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up in the hour ahead, we'll learn about some of the American sites the World Monuments Fund has identified as being at risk and why it's worth the effort to preserve them. It's the basis on which we move forward, understanding our past. And if the past disappears, that basis is gone. Plus, friends from Ireland and Wales share the importance of the Irish Sea that both unites and divides their Celtic lands. It makes for a great ferry ride, too. Keep your eyes on the sea. You can get minke whale there, dolphins, porpoise, basking shark, which is, I think it's the largest shark. The sea, the sea, long may it roll between England and me. It's our sure guarantee that one day we'll be free. Thank God we're surrounded by water. Investigate disappearing places and the allure of the Irish Sea. It's in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. It's what's kept the Celtic lands of Ireland, Scotland, and Wales united and at a safe distance from one another. In just a bit today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll examine the intrigue of the Irish Sea, how it's helped to defend and define Ireland and its neighbors, and how it makes a breezy centerpiece to include in your travel plans for the British Isles. Let's start with a look at a few of the buildings and places that are important to history in the USA but are considered at risk. Sites from Marfa in Texas to the Hudson River and Puerto Rico have just been added to the biannual watch list of endangered places by the World Monuments Fund. Joining us from New York to explain is the USA coordinator for the World Monuments Fund, Frank Sanchez. Frank, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Frank, tell us what exactly the World Monuments Fund is and what is its mission. Well, it's a worldwide organization based here in New York City, And its uh, purpose is to assist people around the world who are trying to protect or save a property of significance. So you don't do it yourself? You support organizations and people within different countries as they recognize this problem? Yes. People apply or nominate properties to the World Monuments Fund, and then if they are selected to be included in our watch, they then receive assistance from us, technical assistance or guidance or planning, preservation, whatever it might be. Now, why does this even matter? Well, I think saving our patrimony in any country always matters. Uh, It's the basis on which we sort of move forward, understanding our past. And if the past disappears, that basis is gone, and it leaves you sort of rootless. What is the risk to sites in the United States, and what are some examples of important sites that if if we don't wake up to the threats, we won't have them for the next generation? (laughs) Well, the the threats are sure there. Sometimes it's just in terms of outright desire on someone's part to demolish a property. Other times, properties are severely deteriorating. Other times, it's traditions of construction that are being lost And and sometimes it's just solving a technical problem that is threatening a property long-term. So it's very varied. So there's different threats. Uh, The first one is, you mentioned development. Does that just mean there's people who want to make money by turning a piece of property into something that they can charge rent for? You know, one thing about historic sites is that they're real estate, and real estate has a price tag, and so there's always sort of a bounty on the value of developing a historic site, which Hmm. is particularly true I guess, in New York City, where land values are so high. But we do have one site this year, which is easy to understand what the development threat is, which is the Palisades. You probably know the Palisades, which are those gigantic basalt cliffs on the opposite side of the Hudson River from Mm -hmm. northern Manhattan and lower Westchester. And that view of the Palisades, of the natural tree line, on top of them and the cliffs themselves and the river below was all protected by something called the Palisades Interstate Commission, which was created about 75 years ago by the Rockefeller family, which protects a strip of the top of the Palisades uh, from their edge back about a quarter to half a mile. But beyond that half mile, the land is not protected and the townships have all supported the idea of protecting the Palisades by keeping buildings in the unprotected portions low. But this year, the township of Englewood Cliffs decided that it would be appropriate to allow LG Electronics to construct 
a 15- or 20-story building that extends 145 feet above the tree line. Wow. So when you look across the river at the Palisades, you see this, I mean, if it gets built, you would see this enormous building just jutting up against above this unbroken tree line. And if you want to get a sense of what would happen to the Palisades, all you have to do is look south of the George Washington Bridge, where there's now a 50-story skyscraper going up. Mm -hmm. But to the north of the bridge, there is nothing. And should this project go forward, it would set an awful precedent for the other townships behind the Palisades to stop adhering to this sort of idea of protecting them and follow suit. In which case, that whole sense of a natural landscape across from one of the most densely built and populated areas in the United States would be lost. Something like that, I would imagine, is controversial because you're dealing with people's property rights. Uh, Do you just have to get in a bidding war and actually buy the rights from these people? Or or can you just say this is our our society's right is to preserve this? One of the big issues of preservation uh, has always been property rights. Now, in the case of Englewood Cliffs, the village or the township of Englewood Cliffs has decided to change its ordinance, which previously did not allow tall buildings to allow them, and now there's a suit against them about that. But they can change the law, and they probably will. And I think this battle is going to be won by public opinion and public outcry, and that is why the property was nominated to the World Monuments Fund watch, Mm -hmm. and I believe they want our role to be to put this on an international stage. You also mentioned just simply bad construction. Are there famous sites in the United States that we would all value that simply were built in a way that's just not lasting 100 years later? (laughs) Well, uh, actually, I wouldn't say bad construction, but unknown materials or materials that haven't been proven over time are an issue in the preservation of modern architecture And this year, another one of our sites is the St. Louis Arch, which is really an iconic American site designed by Eero Saarinen back in the 1960s. And the arch is sheathed in stainless steel, which Saarinen chose precisely because it was supposed to be stainless. Okay, so this is the big famous arch in St. Louis that you... The very same. The city with a handle, right. Okay, that's... (laughs) That's it. So it turns out that the stainless steel is not so stainless, and Mm. the arch has been steadily staining and showing these red streaks over time. And the issue, they fear that it might be more problematic than just staining, which is a cosmetic issue, but that whatever corrosion is causing the staining might be affecting the backside of the stainless steel plates that sheathe the arch and, if not checked actually go on to the structure of the arch and begin to affect that over time. Frank Sanchez is the USA Project Coordinator for the World Monuments Fund, and he's telling us about sites in the USA that the fund has identified as endangered, sites that are on its watch list. You know, Frank, just to, uh, to finish off, give me some examples of, of what the World Monuments Fund has accomplished in the United States and where you feel very gratified by your commitment to the project and the work you've put in. Well, there are two projects I would like to mention. One of them is along the theme of modernism, like the Arch in St. Louis, and and that is the Orange County Government Center, which is a building designed by Paul Rudolph in the early 1970s in Goshen, New York. Goshen is a 19th-century town and looks it, and uh, in the midst of this 19th-century environment, Paul Rudolph, who was one of America's premier modernist architects at the mid-century, designed a very forward-looking government center. And it had a hard time getting sort of accepted by the public in Goshen because it was so different from the architecture that surrounded it. But over time has come to be acknowledged as one of Rudolph's uh, really important buildings. The town, however, the county was bent on tearing it down and used the excuse of uh, purported damage by not Hurricane Sandy, but the one before that, Irene, I think it was, which caused a number of leaks in the building, which really were the result of lack of maintenance by the county. And then a group of grassroots uh, citizens, the taxpayers of Orange County, realized that similar Paul Rudolph buildings have been, in fact, rehabilitated 
in other parts of the country and at much less cost than it would be to tear this down and put up a new county center. And so they waged a campaign and brought us into the picture to try to uh, stave off the proposed demolition of the building. And happily, it seems like the tide has been turned, although it isn't completely sure yet. But it looks like the county legislature has been convinced to uh, vote for and support the idea of renovating and restoring parts of the Orange County Government Center and maintaining it in that building in the village despite the fact that I think many people there still don't feel it is something that fits, but see its significance as an example of modern architecture and a very unusual one in such a setting as Goshen. Hmm. The other project I want to mention is Taros Pueblo, uh, which is the opposite end of the spectrum of American architecture in that it's probably, if the Rudolph Building is one of our newest, the Taros Pueblo in New Mexico is one of America's oldest buildings practically 900 years old. And what was being lost there was the tradition of being able to construct and maintain adobe buildings. After the building was put on the watch in 2010, we worked with the tribal government there to develop a training program in which some of the elders in the village who remembered the construction techniques of adobe buildings did a training program for 10 young men who work in the Pueblo, and we chose a building which was in severely deteriorated state near collapse at the entrance to the Pueblo. And those 10 men were taught how to rebuild it. And over a period of two years, they did exactly that. And the important thing there is that in doing so, they learned that tradition of adobe construction, which has gone on for hundreds of years at Taos Pueblo, and most recently has been threatened with loss. So from the Rudolph building, from from our generation to the Taos Pueblo a thousand years ago, the World Monuments Fund is waging quite a impressive battle to defend buildings and sites that are important to our entire culture for generations to come. Frank Sanchez, thanks for your work and best wishes with the World Monuments Fund. Thank you. It's very nice to talk to you. You can hear more about how the World Monuments Fund compiles its global watch list of disappearing places every two years. Look for program number 350 in the Travel with Rick Steves archives from January 2014. That's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Next, we'll look at the role the Irish Sea plays in framing the Celtic world. We're at 877-333-RICK. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. The European Union received the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize for promoting peace, human rights, and democracy. Information available at euintheus.org. I'm intrigued by a major body of water that we usually overlook, even though it frames so much of the Celtic world. When I look at a map of the British Isles, it's easy to notice how the basin that we call the Irish Sea works to keep Ireland separate from Scotland, England, and Wales. And then there's the Isle of Man in the middle of it, home to yet another intriguing Celtic culture. 
I've called in two of my favorite tour guides from either side of the Irish Sea to tell us how that body of water influences their worlds and to help us to make it part of our travel plans between Ireland and Britain. Stephen McPhillamy joins us from Derry in Northern Ireland. And if you've heard him before on Travel with Rick Steves, you know he's loyal to Ireland through and through. Martin DeLandovitz is a proud son of Wales, and he lives not far from the sea in the north of Wales. Stephen and Martin, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Rick. Great to be here. So it's the Irish Sea. Does anybody dispute that? Why isn't it the Welsh Sea? Uh, there's no disputes. We're, we're happy no. it's called the Irish Sea, but I wonder what the Welsh perspective is. No, I mean, it's you can take it if you want. <laughs> it sort of comes and goes anyway, doesn't it, on a daily basis? Well, there is the Cel- there's another the one called the Celtic Sea. But that's what it is. It's got, you got Scotland, the Island Man, Ireland, and Wales all around there. Could, yes. there it's a basin surrounded by Celtic people. Yeah, it is. And the reason that it is surrounded by Celtic people is, of course, because the sea is there, because we tend to view the sea as an obstacle these days to travel, but it was the highway. Well, that's true, isn't it? In the yeah, old days, yeah, that was the way to that connect. That was the highway. I mean, you stand on the Giant's Causeway, you're looking at Scotland, and I go to the top of Holyhead Mountain, I'm looking at Ireland. What is the uh, approach to the sea between Ireland and Wales? Because when I'm in Wales, we've got all of these uh, lifeboat initiatives going on. Mm -hmm. Uh, Apparently, there's a need to rescue people at sea. I don't recall lifeboat uh, charities in Ireland. We actually have them too. We have the same charity that these guys have, the Royal National Lifeboat Institution. Is that right? But funny enough, like we're not a very... For an island, I think it's funny that Ireland's not a very very seafaring nation. Mm -hmm. we We have no admiral heroes or... We had one pirate queen back in the 1500s, but apart from that, no. Uh, Martin was talking about how in the Middle Ages, and that was a, a connection. So Ireland and, and Wales would have been connected via the Irish Sea. Yeah, if you, if you look back, it's the intriguing thing. You go back to the oh, uh, six, seven, eight hundreds, and the O'Neill of Ulster were um, rulers of Scotland. They were rulers both on the Isles and they were rulers in Ulster. You think about Vikings. I mean, if you look at the Irish Sea, if you look at the Viking Kingdom of Dublin, and then they also own the Outer Isles, settlement in Wales. At different times, different sets of people moved across the Irish Sea and controlled it. It was a unifying thing culturally, linguistically, rather than anything that divided. On the point of connecting Wales and Ireland, Irish chieftains used to raid the coast of Wales, and that's how we got St. Patrick to come to yes, Ireland. That's, that's true. Yes. He didn't come by choice. We went and stole him, brought stole him back him from Wales. Slave. He was a Roman Briton. Uh, he either lived in the north of England or somewhere in northern Carlisle, they reckon, these yeah. days, don't they? And when you think about the Irish Sea, it actually, we're talking about it being a connector, but it was also kind of a barrier because the Romans got to Wales, but they just they just decided not to cross over to Ireland. Yeah, and that's an important part of our history, too, is the sea has been a, Irish Sea has been a protector of Ireland. It's kept the enemy out. I mean, the invaders like the English or the Romans, whoever, obviously they're English crossed it, but we have an old song in Ireland, and, and the chorus of it is the sea, it's about the Irish Sea. The chorus goes, the sea, the sea, long may it roll between England and me. It's our sure guarantee that one day we'll be free. Thank God we're surrounded by water. Again, beautiful. And the Welsh don't have that sea to protect them. If you look, yeah. So you're more integrated into England. In a way, yes. I mean, the truth about Wales is from, let's say, the Roman point of view. Romans never wanted Wales. It rains too much. The soil is thin and acid. All you can ever grow in Wales is small sheep and discontented people. It's not a land that gives bounty. Let's talk about Ireland. Do, do the Romans <laughs> Even want Even more God-forsaken than Wales. Now, I'll tell you something that's interesting to me, and I'm just thinking about this talking now. West Coast people. Now, West Coast America, here we are in Seattle, far more laid back. And throughout, if you go to France, down the West Coast and all that, they're, they're really laid back people. East Coast people are uptight by comparison. Now, the part of Ireland that looks at us is the East Coast. In Ireland, do you have that East-West business? Oh, yeah. The, well, that? Yeah, I, I buy into that, yeah, that philosophy. I think the West Coast of Ireland's yeah. very similar to the West Coast of Britain, like the Welsh. Exactly, but, yeah. you know, ah. we're, we're looking again, we're looking across the same bit of sea, aren't we? It's only a tiny little bit of sea. Now, when you think about the difference between the Irish and the Welsh, can you make a case that there was less difference before the Romans stopped and the difference today between Ireland and Wales can be traced back to the fact that the Romans took Wales, but they never impacted Irish culture? Or what causes the difference between the Welsh and the Irish? Linguistically, they're different. That that happens in the 400s, the 500s, the linguistic change. I mean, they are Celtic languages. But, do you know, all of Celtic society, both that of Ireland and both that of Wales, it was an extremely fragmented society. Within Ireland, and Stephen will tell you, within Wales, there's constant intra- and internecine strife. 
Okay, so there's differences within Wales as much as between Welsh and Irish. Absolutely. And so that what you have is when you put the Irish Sea and the two countries into it, they were just players in a great big shifting kaleidoscope of alliances, <laughs> happinesses, aggressions, you know. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Martin Delandovitz from Wales and Stephen McPhillamy from Ireland, two guides who know the Irish Sea well, and we're talking about the body of water that separates so many Celtic peoples. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Ed's on the phone in Huntington Beach, California. Ed, thanks for your call. Well, thank you for taking my call. My wife and I are going to be traveling uh, in uh, Ireland and Scotland in August, and one of the legs will be going from Belfast uh, over to uh, Stranraer. I was just curious about the kinds of things we might be seeing on that trip over and uh, how the weather might be. Well, I've taken that trip myself hundreds of times. I think it's one of the great things about the Irish Sea is that it's very busy sea. Like, we're always crossing it all the time. Tourists who come to Ireland and Scotland, for some unknown reason, think they have to fly between the two countries when it's a beautiful experience mm-hmm. to get on the boat. The ferry that you'll be taking is not just a little car ferry. Like, this is like a cruise ship. Now, this so, is the main ferry basically connecting Belfast and Glasgow, right? Yeah, you just, you'll take your car, you drive on the boat downtown Belfast, uh, park your car, head up to the bar or head up to the restaurant. They even have a, they even have a McDonald's. They call it the fastest fast food <laughs> oh, in the world. Oh, now, wait. I don't think I would do no, that. I mean, not is, in Ireland. Come this, on. This is what you're going to see on your trip. And as you're going over this, keep your eyes on the sea because uh, you, you can get a minky whale there. Absolutely, yeah. You can yeah. get dolphins, porpoise, hmm. a basking shark, which is, I think it's the largest shark Yeah, in huge, big, 20-foot long. Massive yeah. things. It might be a bit choppy going over. You know, sometimes it gets a wee bit choppy, but the boat's so big you don't really feel it like a big cruise ship. Only if it gets, like, tsunami standards will they cancel the ferry, and that's very rare. Yeah. You'd never get that in the now, summer. Now, Ed's going to be heading over to Scotland, but uh, just south of that is Sellafield, right? This uh, notorious uh, nuclear power plant. I read that the Irish Sea is one of the most radioactive seas in the world. Yeah, well, we're very nervous about it in Ireland because we, we're nuclear-free, and we're worried that the, the British um, nuclear station might melt down someday, and all it takes then is for the wind to change direction, and we mm-hmm. start glowing in the dark. I... I, I, I <laughs> Do you, know, you, can, you can laugh on this side of the Atlantic, but <laughs> it's, it's such a problem, isn't it? And I, you know, I'm no lover of nuclear power either. But do you know, if you think about coal, oil, gas, global warming, uh, the thing about it is, is that nuclear well doesn't warm the environment. But if it goes wrong, it goes spectacularly wrong, yeah, doesn't it's, it? It's, it's, it's a not... tough issue. But apart from the uh, the safety of nuclear power and those kind of concerns. Is the Irish Sea, is there a concern that, that it still provides healthy seafood to eat and so on, or is it too well, polluted? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of points about, or a lot of comments that it is very radioactive and mm. that it is polluted, but I know there's a lot of fishing going on in the Irish Sea and we're still eating our fish from it. Uh, I've eaten all so my it's life. Not, it's not affected us, has it? No. <laughs> <laughs> there's, another is, there's another sort of exciting challenge, uh, this vision of building a bridge or a tunnel connecting Ireland and Wales. Is, oh, that, is oh. that just a pipe dream or might now, that happen? Now listen, you want to think big. You're a Victorian. Do you know what they're going to do? They were going to wall off the North Passage and St. George's Channel and drain the Irish Sea. That was, a that was the plan. In Victorian take, times. In Victorian times. Mind you, they were going to dig the Channel Tunnel back then too and they started. And there was a serious scheme to wall off the Irish Sea, turn it maybe into a freshwater lake, then start reclaiming land. Absolutely. Think, Come on. Think, no, serious. <laughs> think big or what? Think, well, uh, that's, that's huge. But I think there's the engineers in Ireland are actually, they've proposed a tunnel from Rosslare to Fishguard. Yeah, I think it's, well, I've, I've heard some chit-chat about it, but it's, we have... It's not, it's not in... We can't even works. afford a packet of peanuts in Ireland at the moment, so we're oh, definitely... Yeah. <laughs> but the other thing, if you think about it, there's not that much traffic to justify that. No, there wouldn't be... Well, have wind turbines come to that part of the Irish Sea? Yeah, you get the wind turbines, and uh, I, I agree, and it's, it's a good point to make that there are uh, natural sources of energy that are perfectly good. But, do you know, it requires a huge thing to actually change all of our energy demands to natural sources, doesn't it? And yeah. until then, nuclear, I'm afraid, and I am afraid, because you know, I'm no great lover of it. It's going to have to play a part, isn't it? And see the great thing about that ferry across from Belfast to, to Stranraer? is once you get off on the other side, you're, you're in Glasgow in less than an hour. Mm. You can be up in Edinburgh in three hours. You can drive yeah. on up to the Highlands. It just opens up everything. You know, yes, now, that's does. one thing a lot of people don't realize. A lot of people go to Scotland and they don't realize Belfast is just a quick ferry ride absolutely. away, really. Oh, and there's buses leaving several times a day yeah. from Glasgow to Belfast. And then from Belfast, how long does it take on the train to get to Dublin? Two hours. Two hours. Yeah. Yeah. So it opens up everything. So everything's yeah. open. Yeah. You've got all those Celtic capitals. And then if you even go back to Victorian times, it was a big deal. 
when Dublin was the second city of the of Great Britain, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So what they had a big uh, the London talk about the London Dublin connection. You think of uh, Glasgow mm-hmm. and you think of Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. That's a twin for you know for Glasgow you read Belfast, you know, shipbuilding industry. And for Edinburgh, you read Dublin, these great Georgian cities. But then in the 19th century, you're absolutely right, Rick. What happens is there's the ferry, goes across from uh, Dublin to Holyhead. Well, that's, and that's the north of Wales, which really is the quick connection to London. That's right. London to Dublin was a very important access. Absolutely, since, since if you like, it was the vice-regal centre for London was HQ, if you like, headquarters, and Dublin was the vice-regal centre. And so communication between the two was essential. So you had Thomas Telford building his lovely A5, a road still used today. And then, of course, the railway arrives in the 1850s, 60s, the railway's arriving. So you go across North Wales and you see a lot of that engineering from the 19th century that really was part of Britain asserting its control on Ireland by having a good infrastructure. It's, you know, the wealth of... If you look at the building of Dublin, Marvelous buildings. They they are beautiful. And where did that wealth come from? It's all, it, what built the wealth of, of Edinburgh. It's the British Empire. Yeah. Well, the, the other thing too about this whole British Empire is that we were providing a lot of the manpower in the factories yes. and in the in the linen mills and in the coal mines and so that path from Dublin through Hollyhead to London is mm. well worn by millions millions yeah. of Irish people. Yeah. There's a song we have regarding how many Irish people went to London to work in World mm. you know World War Two. The the chorus of it is. Um, it was in the year of 39, the sky was full of lead, Hitler was heading for Poland, and Paddy for Hollyhead. So 1939, the war's cooking, yeah. Hitler's heading for Poland. Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, or the Irish Free yeah. State, yeah. is neutral, and we're providing manpower for the British Army, but we're providing 20 times more to work while the British men are off fighting so the Germans. So just like, just like we had Rosie the Riveter here in England, you had Irish people coming in and doing the industrial labour? Yeah, and we had, we had this type of builder, he was called a navvy, he was like the... Like the it comes Navy from, Seal of construction workers. Yeah. You know? It comes from na- building the navigational canals. That's, oh, is that a that's navi? where the Navy yeah. comes navi. from. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's McAlpine's Fusilier. McAlpine's Fusilier. Oh, as now. No, sorry. Mustn't start. Beautiful song. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, um, you know the song too? Yeah. Yeah. As down the glen came Alpine's men with their shovels slung behind them. It was in the pub that they drank their sob and up in the spikers you will find them. Oh, they sweated blood and they washed down mud with pints and with quarts of beer. But now I'm on the road again with my Alpine's fusiliers. McAlpine was, was the main construction giant in Britain, and his, his Irish labourers were known as McAlpine's Fusiliers. Yeah. So that, that's a folk song from the 1930s, basically. Yeah. And yeah. Irish and Welsh all can sing it at the drop of a hat. Yeah, yeah. It's a great song. The gangs, you know, the road gangs and the building gangs. And the Irish, and I have to say this, they built. Why did they build? It's because they had a reputation for working, and they did build, and they did work tremendously. But the Welsh equally provided the soldiers, as did the Irish, that maintained the British Empire, that built our cities, that built our roads, that built everything. And everything that you see in, in Dublin or Belfast or Glasgow or Edinburgh or indeed in London, and everything you see in Wales, that's all built with the wealth of the British Empire. The wealth work. of the British Empire and the hard labour of the Celtic yeah, people. But, you know, people. Hard labour of the Celtic people, and people will say, oh, we were exploited, we worked in the factories and all the rest of it. The real exploitation was going on in Africa and India. It wasn't going on. Okay. You know, it's terrible. You know, bad wages, bad conditions in Britain, but you go out there and you see what there is. Going back to this whole topic of the Irish Sea, we were the Celtic nation. The Irish were the Celtic nation who was most reluctant to be part of this empire. Like Martin's talk there in glowing terms of empire isn't shared by my good self. You know, like, oh, no, I, I, but well, that makes sense because Wales yeah, is part of yeah, Great Britain, yeah. right? It was easier to understand why the Welsh assimilated with the British more, with the English more, because you share the same island with them. Like, we're on our own, so it's easy for us to say we're independent and different, whereas if you're sharing the island with another tribe, which is the English, it's hard mm. to have uh, your own identity as much. Going back to the 19th century now, in the 18th century, and Ireland was then yet part of Great Britain then, wasn't it? Uh, since 1801, was it? The thing about it is that I don't speak in glowing terms of the British Empire, but if you want to see its products, then you go to our great cities. And you may be ashamed of it, you may regret it, but at the end of the day, you can't deny where the money came from. That's where it really came from. It's kind of like being beat by Rome in the ancient times. Well, you lost the battle, but now you're on the winning team. Yeah, mind you, that that team is now (laughs) long gone. The British (laughs) Empire is a memory, but Britain is now Great Britain. I I, I fail to see its greatness much. But I love what you guys were talking about with the great cities. I mean, Glasgow, Belfast, industrial powerhouses, 
and then their sister cities, the Edinburgh cities. and Dublin, yes, the, the cultural cultured cities. cities yeah. yes, and yeah. today, for a long time, everybody's been crazy about Dublin and Edinburgh, but people are paying more attention to Glasgow and uh, uh, Glasgow, Belfast yeah. these days. You, you go to Scotland now, and every all the young people want to live in Glasgow. Yeah. There's a harder image to those two towns, too, isn't there? Oh, like yeah. Belfast yeah. Bit and of Glasgow. Danger. Yeah. Bit of danger. Working well, yeah, class. Yeah. Not oh, genteel. No, you no. got the gentility Sh- in uh, Dublin yeah. or Ship- Shipyards and dock workers. And-, and, and good, healthy immigrant populations, too. Speaking of immigrant population and the Irish Sea, a big crossing was Irish people going across the Irish Sea to Liverpool on their way to the United States. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So Liverpool is a huge Irish community there. Lots of the Beatles had an Irish background, and there's a big Catholic cathedral there, which would be a huge one. It's known as Paddy's Wigwam. Paddy's <laughs> <laughs> Wigwam. <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Martin Delandovitz from Wales and Stephen McPhillamy from Ireland, and we're talking about the Irish Sea. You guys are proud Celtic nations, and there's a quirky little Celtic group right in the middle of the Irish Sea, the Isle of Man. Yeah, that's where our brothers, the Manx people, live. M-A-N-X. That's the name of the tribe that inhabit the, the Isle Manx. of Man. And, and how are they different from the Irish and the Welsh? Well, they're pretty different. Like, they used to have their own language. Unfortunately, now, I'm, I'm pretty sure Manx is dead. It's yeah. extinct. But they, they have the oldest parliament in the world. They're very um, proud people. They have a nice sort of Celtic Viking mix. Uh, they have casinos there. It's the only part of the UK that... So politically, they're part of England? Yeah, they're part of the United Kingdom, but they're, they're a little self-governing kind of... I don't know if I'd use the word protectorate, but they're little, right. they have their own little parliament. And uh, quote me if I'm wrong here, Martin, but the other man is tax-free. Uh, it has a different or tax a, regime, yeah, very ta- different. Yeah, tax haven. And it's, to live there nowadays, you can't just turn up and say, I want to live here. You've got to have a healthy bank balance before they'll let you in. I have, I have a few friends in the other man. I, I was surprised how different they are. Like They, are, they have very, a very distinct very culture. Real sort of uh, proud and... And uh, they also are famous for having cats with no tails. Cats with no tails. Yeah, People the, go to Isle of Man, cats. they always are struck by how interesting the experience is. One of the most interesting things for me about the Isle of Man is that, uh, like, like the United States, we imprisoned people during World War II who were ethnically of uh, our, let's just say, our, our enemies. And uh, many of the German origin people were, in fact, Jewish, who'd escaped Nazi Germany. But because of their uh, German origins, they were imprisoned. And, of course, the people that came were all the professors, the lawyers, and the Isle of Man had a huge camp for people of German origin, but they were as British as I am. And it was a university. It was the best university in Britain during World War II. Every book on the archaeology of the Isle of Man, Gerhard Bessieu, was written during World War II. Phenomenal work was done there. So I I don't quite understand. English would lock up Germans just like Americans locked up Japanese. Yes, exactly. And these were people that fled Germany before. That's right. And they went to England, but England locked them up and put them on their own little island. Yes. So, I mean, some, some went to Australia, some went here, some went there. So England used the Isle of Man Absolutely. as an Alcatraz yeah, almost yeah, yeah, for suspected yeah. uh, German during sympathizers. During World War II, but, but they say it was the most cultured place in the world during World War II. Flappers say what's coming to us, there's no villains to pursue us, and they call it the Isle of Man. Tell us about your own experiences on the Isle of Man or exploring any other areas around the Irish Sea at 877-333-7425. Or you can post your travel tales and thoughts in the radio section of ricksteves.com. There's more with Martin Delandovitz from Wales and Stephen McPhillamy from Ireland in just a moment on Travel with Rick Steves. Guides from either side of the Irish Sea are joining us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to help us appreciate the role this body of water plays in the Celtic world. And we're looking at ways to include it in our travel plans to Ireland, Scotland, Wales, and maybe even to the misty Isle of Man, protected from invaders by a Celtic sea god. Stephen McPhillamy is our representative from the Irish side of the sea, and Martin Delandovitz comes to us from Wales. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Chris is calling us from Alisa Viejo in California, and he joins us to tell us about visiting the Isle of Man. Chris, thanks for your call. Hi there. Yeah, I visited Ireland first, and then I went to the Isle of Man for about three days. I rented a car and just systematically went around the island. I stayed in a and b at the north end on a farm. That was very interesting. And the farm was owned by two English people. Did you find it was kind of a resort land for English people, or did it have its own culture and its own sort of uh, character? Well, they explained that this was a very popular place during the Victorian era for English people to go to. So there's all these old railroads, and you, there's horse-drawn carriages, and it's almost a feeling like it had this Victorian-era place-to-go kind of a feel to it. And uh, 
now they have these motorcycle races, I think, to attract people. Though I did not, I was not one when I was there. Yeah, that's, uh, Chris, that's the TT races they have every year. I think it's the only part of the United Kingdom where road racing is legal. Huge yes. speeds and unfortunately some all, drivers are killed each year. All around the island. All around the island, just zooming. Yeah, tens of I, thousands that's of why I particularly go. wanted to avoid it. Yeah. <laughs> Chris from California, thanks for your call. Okay. We'll see you in the Isle of Man sometime, but don't go during the car race. Motorbikes. <laughs> Motorbikes, all right. When we think about Ireland and Wales and England and the body of water that separates it, I'm fascinated by this paranoia that England has long had for Ireland being a like a staging ground for whether it's Napoleon or Hitler to yeah. come around the backside to England. So Stephen, all, talk we, about yeah, that. Ireland's always been seen as England's Achilles heel. You know, like we were like the back mm. door into, into Britain. So we were conquered as a result of that. It's surprising the Romans didn't come to us way back. So it was a preventative kind of conquering when, when England was afraid of oh, Napoleon. Oh, definitely, yeah. Well, when the Spanish Armada was defeated, like the English were certain that another one was coming and this time it was going to come into Ireland and it did come into Ireland like it landed in Kinsale in 1601. So the Spaniards had Catholic friends in Ireland. Yeah, and the Spanish army Natural landed. allies because they're the same enemy, England. Yeah, and they landed in Southern Ireland and the plan, of course, was to take over Ireland although we were welcoming them and then we'd all sort of maybe cross over the Irish Sea into Scotland gather all the Scots together and they don't need any excuse to conquer England so all of us would then maybe roll south just like Bonnie Prince Charlie would eventually mm-hmm. do and, and conquer so, so what I did England, the what did right England be, do in, in response to that? Oh, so England just came into Ireland and just bamboozled the place like completely conquered us took us over and uh, made us like a colony of themselves Does that relate to by hook or by crook? Yeah well that was Cromwell coming in then in the 1640s like 1649 when his, Oliver Cromwell when he came into Ireland but Ireland had pretty much been conquered by that stage already it's interesting if you go back a bit from there, Stephen, thinking back to the Norman Conquest. People say the Norman Conquest. It was the Norman Conquest of Ireland, but it, they were Welsh. The majority of the... They yeah. were Norman Welsh people, Cambro Normans, who came over and got Malcolm the Fat and all these... They came over to Ireland. Came over to Across Ireland. Across the Irish Sea. The, the actual invasion of, of Ireland by the Normans was pushed from Wales. Were they giving Welsh people uh, sort of a promise to go over here and they'll get better land and you can be settlers no, it, and plantations? No, it's, it's basically, you, you, I mean, Irish society was the same. It's based on primogeniture. If you're the eldest son, you get the lot. Now, what do you do with your other sons? Where are they going to go? Now, the, the Irish went traveling, but some of the Normans said, oh, we'll go over here and get this. Yeah. And then, of course, as you know, those, those Welsh Normans became more Irish than the Irish. Yeah. And the problem with Celtic societies, we're always fighting amongst ourselves. We always press that self-destruct yeah, button. Yes, so, yes, yes. Like, back in the 12th century, we had two local Irish kings, small-time kings, but they were fighting each other. So the guy who was defeated invited the Welsh to come over and help him. Yes. Or the Welsh, the English, the British, whatever way you want to look at them. But they came in, so we invited them in. Yeah. And then they stayed and just you know, didn't want to leave. I think to the credit, I mean, they didn't want to leave. They've, they'd acquired land, but also they, more Irish than the Irish. And obviously they blended well into that society. But then the Normans were always like that, weren't they? They always blended so well. They never, yeah. uh, you know, where are the Normans today? <laughs> They're still there. Blended yeah, we, in. We have a little, uh, there's lots of great cultural events, though, around the, based around the Irish Sea. We have sort of like mini Celtic Olympics and cultural get-togethers. And, so there's lots Pan-Celtic of, kind yeah, of yeah. activities. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the intriguing Irish Sea. We're joined by Martin Delandovitz from Wales and Stephen McPhillamy from Ireland. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Irene's on the phone in Phoenix, Arizona. Irene, thanks for your call. How are you? Good, thanks. Going over there uh, to Ireland, I would like to take the ferry from Belfast over to Stranraer, do some touring around, including Edinburgh and Glasgow, and maybe some of the uh, lake country, and down and come back through Wales. I was through there once, and I was intrigued by the country, and I would like to do a little more of that and then come back to Dublin. And that would mean that we'd have a car all the way, which would be better than trying to pick up in one place and drop it off at another and either flying into Dublin or making that starting point or into Belfast. So let me review this. You're going to start in Ireland, maybe Belfast, and then you want to swing through Scotland and England and Wales and then return to Dublin in yes. Ireland. and then back to Belfast. And then, So it's a circular tour from Belfast. Uh, what do you guys advise from a car point of view? Would she take the ferry without the car? Or I remember a long time ago it was a big deal to take the car from the Republic into the north of Ireland. Yeah, it used so to be a big deal, but I think... Well, no, not no, anymore. No, it'd be grand. No, Irene, I think you'll have no problems there. I think that I would take the car totally. 
There's I mean, good train connections and everything, but just the freedom of taking the car on the now, ferry. Now, one thing to consider is uh, you'd save a little money walking on from Hollyhead to Dublin, and you don't want a car in Dublin. Irene, would you be sightseeing between Dublin or Belfast or just catching the train back up uh, to Belfast? Catching the train, probably. So you might save money turning it in at Hollyhead. I don't know. You might save it, but I think they're not much. I think that the, the car company would charge you more for dropping off in a different place than what okay, you picked so up. Okay, so bring it back to Belfast. Mm-hmm. Want to check that first? What do you think, Martin? I, the only thing you can do, Irene, is is uh, you just look at the cost of going on as a foot passenger. If you went on as a foot passenger, say at Hollyhead, this is just an example. It's not what you're going to do, but it's an example. Then you went over to uh, Dublin and you rented a car there at Dunleary. You just have to balance the, the cost of... Normally, you just wouldn't need a car in Dublin. That would No, you wouldn't need to... What, no, what I'm a saying is... a car in Dublin is a handicap. Too high, <laughs> yeah. Two hires of a car. In other words, higher one in Ireland, higher one in Wales. Mm-hmm. And then you, you don't have to take it across from the ferry, and therefore you might save money. I've got a feeling it's going to be fairly marginal, that, that money, money yeah, saving. But I that sounds so. like a great vacation. It is so much easier to have a car, to go to the places Absolutely. you really want. You know, Irene, what you might do, the ferry comes into Dunleary, right? Yes. You could get a B&B in Dunleary, leave the car there where it's free to leave it on the street and take the uh, dart into Dublin and do your sightseeing yes, of yes. Dublin from Dunleary. Absolutely. There, there's two ferries, though, from Hollyhead, one in the Dublin city centre and one to Dunleary. Dunleary, that's right, yeah. Okay. yeah. So the city centre might be, might More be better, might be better, but yeah. not necessarily. But D- Dunleary is a, a lovely little town. It's, oh, beautiful. It's, yeah. it's, it's had a lot done to it. It's, it's looking really prosperous. There's some lovely places. they great restaurants in Dunleary. And you can commute into town very it's, easy. You get in the dart and it's poof, you're straight there. And there's a lot to be said for staying there. One of the things that I would like to see again is the Edinburgh Tattoo. And that's yeah. in August. Yeah, you got to be there I don't just know if you've ever days, yes. um, seen that or not. If, you, if you're thinking of doing that, my strong advice is you plan that well ahead and make sure that you reserve your accommodation well ahead because, you know, the town is absolutely full of people visiting and oh, yeah. beds can't be had for love nor money, so make sure you plan ahead. And again, if you have a car, always consider staying outside town. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to get a, I know to get a hotel in Edinburgh at that time... It's like four hundred pounds per night. I know. Oh, during the Edinburgh Festival, it's tough. Yeah. Irene, are you from Northern Ireland originally? Are you? Uh, yes, originally. Can you, hear, can, you can, can hear, hear that. Accent, I could, yeah. could hear yeah. that, couldn't yeah. you? Yes. I wasn't sure if it was Scottish or Northern Irish, but I could hear it coming through. And so, what was it that gave Irene's? Uh, uh, oh, just from the way. first moment she spoke. But I'll, yeah. I just there the way she said pounds as well. So like how we have it here. Yeah. That we do deal with the vowels slightly different. A little different. So, All right. Pounds. Well, Irene, good luck on your trip. Thanks for your call. All right. Thank you. Thank you. The intrigue of the Irish Sea is our topic right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guests live on either side of it. Martin DeLandovitz is from Wales, and Stephen McPhillamy comes to us from Northern Ireland. Well, we've been talking about transportation connections and history and car rentals. Let's talk a little more about just the poetic wonder of, of experiencing this part of the world. Where are the beautiful spots to be overlooking the Irish Sea? Martin from Wales? Um, Tacitus, the Roman writer, we're talking in the late 70s. He describes... Uh, in the late what? <laughs> 80, 70, 70, 80. 70, 80. Oh, 70, we're talking 80, 80. the 70s. He, he has Cnaeus Julius Agricola standing on top of a hill and looking at Ireland. Now, that can only have been Hollyhead Mountain. Yeah. And Wait th- a minute. There's a Roman historian writer that was standing on Hollyhead? Yeah, what he, he describes Agricola standing 70 there, years after with, Christ. He says with one legion or two legions of one, one season he could take Ireland. He's standing there, and you, you stand there on Hollyhead Mountain where there's the remains of a Roman signal station and lighthouse, and you think, Agricola stood here, because you can read it, and you can see Ireland on the clear You can day. see Ireland from, yeah. from, from it's, Hollyhead and North It's a very connected thing. And all along, because it's the west coast of Wales, and the waves, are, although the island of Ireland does tend to sort of moderate the effect of the waves, it's a very rugged coast, and more or less anywhere along the coast of Wales, you're going to have beautiful views. The South St. David's Peninsula gorgeous. But a little bit foreboding because didn't those Romans end up naming Ireland Hibernia? Hibernia. Land of winter. The yes. land of winter. Well, just, it's lucky the Romans didn't come. We would have we would have handled the Romans. We would have whooped them. We've beaten bigger empires than that one. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen McPhillamy, Irishman, what do you think of when you want to think of a grand perspective over the Irish Sea? Well, my, a sea named after your people. My favourite memory of the Irish Sea is coming in on the ferry from Hollyhead it's a really fast ferry, but there's an island called Ireland's Eye. And once you pass that, the ferry begins to slow. And as it comes into Dublin city centre, 
like I always feel like I just want to jump out and swim the rest, you know. Yes, yes. Like I just want to. It just looks beautiful. Like you're just floating in, and it just looks gorgeous as you enter Dublin city centre. It seems to go sideways the boat at that point, doesn't it? Fading. It's off. like this is my island. You know? This is my. Island. And you lose that if you fly into Dublin. There's yeah. a lot to be said about taking the ferry oh, across yeah. the Irish oh, Sea. Yeah, 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 you really yeah. feel like you've travelled. Then you, you know? do. Like, do you love boat travel, Stephen? Do love you, it. I wish that there were liners that would come across the Atlantic and deliver us here. Yeah. Because uh-huh. you know. It would take, what, two or three days? What a way to travel. But I think if Americans and Canadians knew that these ferries existed more, like they'd use them more. Because yes. last year there, there was a plane cancellation. Right? right, right. So they couldn't fly with Ryanair from Dublin to London. So they had no choice. They needed to get back to London. There were college students. They needed to get back over there. So they had to take the ferry. And they emailed me saying it was the best thing ever yes. happened to them. They're so yeah. glad that Ryanair cancelled their flight but you know, because they got to experience that ferry transfer. And there's transfer. a camaraderie on the boat. Every time Absolutely. I take the boat into Ireland, whether you, I'm coming from Scotland or Wales or even yeah. France, every time I've got beautiful memories of people Talking. in a great mood yeah. coming home. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, And there is, Irene was talking about her vacation, but you think you can go across from the south of Wales to the south of Ireland and you can go up through Ireland and then you could take that ferry over to Stranraer at the top and you could do that lovely Wales, Ireland, Scotland, three Celtic nations. You can mm. unite them by boat. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier. It was the highway. It unified people rather than kept them apart. It's only a modern think that it's a separating thing. Stephen McPhillamy from Ireland and Martin Delendovitz from Wales, thank you very much for sharing a little bit about your sea. Thanks thank you me. very much. The land and the sea are central elements of the Celtic character. It's this attention to their surroundings that I think helps to make the Irish so down-to-earth, and it probably has something to do with the Irish knack for spinning a good yarn. Let's explore the Irish penchant for storytelling right now as Travel with Rick Steves producer Sarah McCormick discovered on our recent trip to Ireland. Mary, Mary, we're going out with this fella. The Irish are famous for their gift of gab. And the husband says to her, you don't like Mary's boy. On my first visit to Ireland, I found that they lived up to their reputation. We all know about the Blarney Stone. It's an actual stone in a castle in County Cork that's said to confer the gift of gab on those who kiss it. And for such a small island, Ireland has produced more than its share of the world's great storytellers. William Butler Yeats, James Joyce, Oscar Wilde, and this young man. And there's a tree over there that's over 500 years old. So what's behind this? The roots of Irish eloquence run deep. In ancient Celtic Ireland, bards called Shanachie were the official keepers of Irish culture and history. Years ago in Ireland, there was no such things as mirror. And I'm sure you're all wondering how the women managed when there was no mirror. And it was an entirely oral storytelling tradition, with nothing written down. Shanachie mastered a repertoire of stories and performed them artfully to rapt audiences thereby passing folklore and stories down through the generations. They would talk about stories that would go on for three nights. There are still professional storytellers in Ireland today. Johnny Daly is one of the modern Irish storytellers who's trying to revive and preserve the tradition. It's, it's like something ancient primeval in us that we just love stories. We've, we entertained ourselves for thousands of years with stories, you know. Daly told me about the work of the Irish Folklore Commission, which was set up by the government in 1935. They were afraid that they were going to lose a lot of the folklore and the stories. And they actually got, I think it's about 100,000 children to go out to all their, their grandparents in particular with their copybooks and get them to tell them the folklore and the stories that they'd grown up with, the fairy stories. The Daly made a study of Irish folklore. He now holds court most evenings at the Brazen Head in Dublin, which claims to be Ireland's oldest pub. He treats customers to an evening of Irish folklore and fairy stories. And the fairies, realizing what had happened, they turned around and they started to stampede around them in a circle to try and get her back. They finally gave up, but just as they left, one of the fairies leaned over on his horse and I came across this man who was singing songs and telling stories in the back of a little pub in County Mayo. He told us he was 82 years old. The place was packed with tourists and locals hanging on his every word. And to tell you the truth, she's no beauty queen either. <laughs> I think, to put it very crudely, we're very good at bullshitting. <laughs> and, you know, there's, it's in our genes that we like to talk, we like to notice things. That's Michal Demora, director of the Great Blasket Heritage Centre on the tip of the Dingle Peninsula, 
on the west coast of Ireland. The center is a museum devoted to the people who lived just off the coast on the rugged Blasket Islands until the 1950s. They were subsistence farmers and fishermen who spoke only Gaelic, which is called Irish here. But what's most remarkable about them is the literary legacy they left behind. In the 1920s and 30s, the tiny population of the Blasket Islands spawned its own literary renaissance and produced a collection of books chronicling their lives and local folklore, all in their native Irish language. I don't know of any community that numbered uh, less than 200 souls that produced so many books. I would like to hear about such a community anywhere in the world because I haven't heard of them up to now and I've been here a long time. Demora doesn't think it's an accident that this happened in Ireland. The basic psyche of, uh, uh, especially people who speak Gaelic, you know, is they need to communicate with people. They need to say what's in their head, you know. And they're, sometimes they bore you. Sometimes you get very, very good speakers and you listen to them forever and ever. Amen. The Blasket Heritage Centre is in an area of County Kerry designated as part of the Goyaltect, regions within Ireland where Irish, not English, is the official language. Bernie is them. Bernie Moriarty grew up in a village in the Kerry Her family spoke Irish at home, and she was taught in the Irish language at school. Moriarty thinks there's something about the Irish language itself that explains her people's penchant for lively self-expression. It does have that richness that English just doesn't touch. Turn a phrase that generates a feeling a lot quicker than English does. Moriarty teaches Irish to school children and also offers classes in Dingle to tourists uh, wanting to learn the language. She gave me a little lesson. Inchkeel, that's any story. So you could greet someone with that. Inchkeel, any story. Now that can't be a coincidence. Isn't that the parish priest that was here before me? <laughs> that's it. From the island of silver-tongued storytellers... This is Sarah McCormick for Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York for studio help this week. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You'll find more online, including links to our guests, program extras, and a chance to join us as a caller on the show. Look in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. Tips about traveling in Europe and information about the EU are available at euintheus.org. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through England, Scotland, Ireland, and beyond, one small group at a time. This year, we're featuring tours of the best of Ireland, the best of Scotland, the best of England, and London. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.